Well, I doubt many people would disagree with the assertion that dishonesty plagues every level of our society. You can find it at the very top. Back in 1998, after a three-year relationship, President Bill Clinton famously testified on national TV that he, quote, did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, end quote. That was quite the stretch of truth, later inviting his own impeachment. But don't be so naive as to think that dishonesty belongs to just one political party, because just a decade earlier, George H.W. Bush made a promise at the Republican National Convention saying, quote, read my lips, no new taxes, end quote. That's a promise you pretty much expect no politician to keep. It's easy to pick on politicians, though, living in the public eye, but deceit really seems to be everywhere. How many people cheat on their taxes? I mean, they're mostly paid in cash. Who would really know if they declared a little bit less income? How many embellished resumes? People say they have job experience when they actually don't, or they say they attended a much more prestigious university. Who would, who would really know? Speaking of employment, how many people smudge timesheets? You said you worked four hours on this project today, but was it really two hours of work and two hours of not work? I mean, dishonesty seems to be everywhere. You have everyday people doing everyday things who just feel the need to resort, resort to deception to gain an advantage in life. We, we seem to live in a world built on lies. Christ was right when he said that the devil does not stand in the truth. Whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. John eight forty four. I mean, he's the one who introduced sin and rebellion into this world through deception. And in that fall, his condition seems to have passed to humanity because we know now we are likewise born sinners by nature and liars by nature. Psalm 58, 3, this is the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. This is part of our fallen, part of our fallen condition now. In our sin and rebellion, we've turned away from God. We don't really trust God to meet our needs, provide for all of our needs. We rely on ourselves. And so to satisfy some longing or fulfill some desire, we have to be in control. And if deception is required to get what we want, well, so be it. It's not like we're concerned with righteousness. I mean, even the ancient Jews were captivated by laws, uh, lies. rather. These were God's people. They confessed him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And listen to what God himself says about them in in that period of their history. What God testified about them, Jeremiah 9, 3 through 6, he says of them, they bend their tongue like their bow, lies and not truth prevail in the land. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor and do not trust any brother because every brother deals craftily. Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. They they claim to be God's people, but their deception revealed their heart of unbelief. So what scripture testifies is true. This world sits in darkness. The evil one reigns and the law of the land is deceit. But the Lord Jesus came to change things. The Father sent his Son into the world to reclaim this world, to to restore it. That work began with salvation. God sent his Son, Christ, to die on the cross and rise from the dead to reclaim those lost in the darkness. Like Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, 
that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. When you come to faith in Jesus, he calls you out of the darkness into his light. And although we await the full ushering in of this kingdom of light on earth, right now Jesus commissions us to live as members of that kingdom. We're to be salt and light now, us who follow him. The instruments through which he will continue to reach and reclaim this world. But do you know what that means? It means for us who, who do follow him, we must put away all falsehood. For lies and liars have, have no part in this kingdom. We, by his grace, we, we no longer serve the father of lies. We now follow the God of truth. We've been given a new nature that we might become like him. Therefore, like we read this morning, Ephesians 4.25, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. We're members of one another. Though we're still sinners, now in Christ, we must, Ephesians 4.22, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is just part of the ethic of the kingdom to which we now belong. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. We we no longer belong to this world. We follow him and his ways. And this is the message the king of the kingdom, Christ, has for us today in his word, where he confronts the heart of the sin of deceit. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, 33 through 37, That's our passage for this morning. So take your Bibles and open up there now. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Turn there. We're in the thick of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And we really kind of have the same setup each week here in chapter 5. Jesus is teaching a crowd of people by the Sea of Galilee. He's telling them about the nature, the true nature of his kingdom and his righteousness. And he's doing that here largely by way of contrast. He's building a contrast between himself, his word, and that of the religious authorities of Israel. Because they had so obscured the way of true righteousness that they were leading people away from God. And so we have a series of six contrasts here in chapter 5 where Christ exposes their phony self-righteousness. And he reveals the true righteousness that should characterize the citizens of his kingdom. And now verses 33 through 37 brings us to the fourth contrast. And this one is all about honesty. Jesus discloses the sin of deceit, which characterized the religious leaders. And he exhibits his way, which is the way of truthfulness. So just follow along and read through this passage now, our, our text for today, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, where he goes on to say, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, No, anything beyond these is of evil. Now, at first glance, this passage might seem a bit odd to you because it's 
all about oaths and vows, and we don't really live in a culture of verbal vows anymore. I mean, when was the last time a plumber came to your house and made a solemn vow to perform the work? Or you went to get your car repaired with a mechanic and he invoked a curse upon himself if he didn't repair your car. Our society just doesn't operate off of verbal vows anymore. But we're not that deep, uh, different because everyone knows deep down that deception is in the heart of fallen man. So we need some type of assurance that this, I can trust this person, that they're going to tell me the truth, that I can believe their commitment. But for us, ever since the printing press, we tend to rely on the, a written contract. Just We're all about signing the dotted line. Did you sign it? That's what we rely on for this assurance. But in the ancient world, it was more about the oath, the vow. And it was a part of normal everyday life. I mean, just imagine buying a house. And instead of signing a stack of 100 papers, the buyer, the seller come together with witnesses. They make solemn vows before the Lord to keep up their end of the bargain. It's not to say they didn't have written records, that they had plenty. But in everyday commerce and relationships, oaths and vows were much more commonplace. I mean, your commitment to do something was was more tied to your word than to a piece of paper. And even God's Old Testament law made provision for oaths and vows. But as we've come to expect by now, the religious authorities of Christ's day, they were experts at contorting the law and basically bending it to whatever shape they wanted it to take. They were masters of giving the appearance of keeping the law while completely ignoring the spirit, the intent of the law. I mean, and they used uh, legal loopholes to basically justify doing the opposite of what the law said. And so in a word, they were hypocrites. And here, when it comes to the law on oaths and vows, they created this massively complex system that classified some oaths as binding. Those count, but others as not binding. And of course, being the lawyers, the teachers of the law, they're the ones who made up the rules as to which one was which. So they created this whole system where you could avoid the appearance of perjury while still justify getting away with complete dishonesty. And all this is coming from the religious authorities. I mean, each week it sounds more and more like these these men are, are really sons of the father of lies, not sons of God. And Christ will say that later. But for now, here on the Sermon on the Mount, he's content to, to expose their hypocritical handling of God's word to the people. He brings to light their dishonest dealings and rebukes really the spirit of falsehood. But in so doing, he, he really points us who follow him to the way of his kingdom, which here is the way of truthfulness, truth, honesty, integrity. Those who follow Christ, that, that's what it looks like. The way of his kingdom righteousness looks like, like a radical commitment to just tell the truth all the time. And what we have here in Matthew 5, this may have been said and written a couple thousand years ago, but his teaching is just as relevant as ever. We just happen to live in a culture that is more rife with lies and deception. So we need to go through these verses, this fourth contrast, and unpack the heart of the sin of deceit. We're going to do so from three perspectives. Three perspectives of this sin of deceit. First is what Moses said. I first want to figure out the Old Testament law, what Moses said, so to speak. Verse 33, he says, again, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, 
but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, what Christ is doing here, he's, he's not directly quoting the Old Testament. I know this is getting a little bit redundant, but he sets up these six contrasts the same way. So it just is what it is. But he starts off by summarizing what the people have heard, not from the scriptures, but what, from what the, the religious leaders taught about the scriptures. But the problem was their teaching brought with it some serious distortions of the scriptures. And what they said had some connection to the Old Testament law, but they found ways of bending it to suit their desires. Now, before we get to what they said about it, let's, let's first just go back and re- think about what, what Moses said, what the Old Testament law actually said about oaths and vows. And what Jesus says here does relate some basic sentiments of the law on keeping your word. I'll just give you a few examples, like Leviticus 19 verse 12. Or in the law, I was commanded, you shall not swear falsely by my name. So as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Or Numbers 30, verse 2. It says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And there's more verses just like this. It's, it's really not hard to see what, what the Mosaic law was getting at with these instructions about oaths and vows. The primary concern was to prohibit perjury. Perjury in its simplest sense just means making a false promise, lying under oath, false swearing. We think of it in a a formal sense today, like in a courtroom. And it used to be when you were called to testify, you had to put your left hand on the Bible, raise your right hand, and take an oath that you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, Nothing but the truth, so help you God, invoking God's name. And to thereafter lie under oath is a criminal offense. But for Israel in the Mosaic law, it wasn't always so formal. Anytime they swore before the Lord or they made a vow, they were bound to keep it. They had to keep their word. God wanted them to be people of their word. So they, they couldn't just make false promises or, or break their promises. This is especially the case because they were swearing by God's name. These vows were made in God's name. They they invoked the name of God. And sometimes they would call a a curse upon themselves if they did not keep their word. They would call on God to judge them if they didn't keep their promise. And by appealing to a greater authority, it it added credibility to their words and kind of up the stakes that they they would obey. They would keep their command. And so it's like Deuteronomy 23 verse 21. It says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. They didn't have to make oaths and vows per se. It's never mandated, but if you're going to do it, if you're going to vow, if you're going to make some promise or commitment, God is your witness, and you're now bound to keep it. Remember, they were a people who belonged to the Lord. They represented Yahweh, the one true God of heaven, the God of truth. He gave them his name. And so now they're called to be like him. In all their dealings, in all their commitments, they had to be truthful. The law of Moses consistently taught that, that swearing falsely was evil. It's a serious sin before God, which he would judge. And so they were bound to perform all their oaths and commitments before the Lord. All right, that, 
That's simple enough. It's not that complicated what the law of Moses says about oaths and vows. It's like you promise something, keep it. You have to keep your word. God is your witness. It's not that problematic, but it became problematic over the centuries as the, these Jewish rabbis and teachers started, started messing with it a little bit. So let me show you, secondly, what, what rabbis said. And three perspectives here on the sin of deceit. What Moses said, the Mosaic law. Secondly, what rabbis said. And I'll, I'll explain that. But again, verse 33 it says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. We first summarize what the Old Testament actually says about making vows. And God did make provision for this practice. He regulated it. But what Jesus is going to react against here is, is not what Moses said about vows, really what, what the rabbis said about vows. You see, in the era between the Old and New Testaments, the teachers of the law had quite a bit of power. God had given Israel his word to guide them and regulate life in the land as the people of God. Throughout much of their history, they completely neglected this word. Later, after the exile, they actually became dedicated to the word. But it's not like everyone had their own personal copy of the Torah, of the law. No, their, their access to the word was still quite limited. They heavily relied on the public reading of scripture at synagogue to even know what God said. They relied on these scribes and teachers to tell them, just read it, what God said. But you see, over the years, on top of what God said, these rabbis, they added another layer. Here's what God said. Let me tell you what he really meant. And look, the word had to be interpreted and applied to meet Israel's changing circumstances. They lost the temple. They lost the land. But over the centuries, these scribes, they took some great liberty in interpreting the word. Many of them were not men of faith, but they used God's word and law as a tool to gain power and influence over the people. And so accordingly, they, they were much more concerned with just keeping the basic letter of the law, but just ignoring the, the, the spirit, the heart, the intent of the law. And it is true. God's law had to be interpreted and applied to their changing circumstances, but they felt that so long as they just kept the basic letter, they were justified. And so the law of Moses was reduced to a type of legal document. And, and these, these scribes, they were known as lawyers, experts of the law of God. What are lawyers known for doing with legal documents? Finding loopholes. And they were, they were the experts. They poured over the law of Moses. They, they manipulated the language. They found loopholes. And they could bend the words, really, to make them say whatever they wanted them to say. Like any good lawyer. And we've already seen examples of this time and time again here in the Sermon on the Mount as Christ is reacting to them. For today, our question is, how did these guys, how did they do that to the Mosaic law on oaths and vows? Well, they reinterpreted all these commands on vows to be less about perjury and more about blasphemy. And I'll explain. They believe that the law, you know, God's law, it wasn't really prohibiting falsely promising something. It's really prohibiting misusing the name of God. Right? The prohibition against false swearing, it's, it's not really against dishonest pledges. That's, that's not really what God cares about. He cares about not taking his name in vain. Listen again to Leviticus 19.12. 
It says, you shall not swear falsely by my name. So as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. In their reading of this passage, they would place all the emphasis on that phrase by my name. So the command is not saying you shall not swear falsely. Sometimes you can swear falsely. That's not the problem. It's just saying you can't swear falsely by God's name. That's the problem. The only type of false swearing that's prohibited is that which invokes the name of Yahweh, because then you're blaspheming. And that's the real sin here. It's not perjury, dishonesty. It's, it's blasphemy. And look, over time, this interpretation took hold. And after that, this new game of, of legal sophistry emerged. Rabbis taught that your oath, your vow, it could be broken so long as you, you didn't invoke the name of God. I mean, you promised to give your daughter away in marriage, but you didn't vow in the Lord's name. So technically, it's negotiable. You vowed to, fa- to fast from meat for a month for the sake of prayer, but you didn't make your vow in the name of the Lord. So, I mean, if you want to change your mind, you could. I mean, this was, it's the verbal equivalent of crossing your fingers behind your back when making a promise. And by the time of Christ's day, you had Jews saying that they were allowed to break their oaths because they didn't swear by God's name, but by something else. And so their, their verbal signature, so to speak, was, was negotiable. You can already see how disingenuous this is. It's like someone today saying they're, they're justified when they lied under oath because their hand wasn't actually touching the Bible. When they swore, like their hand was hovering over the Bible, didn't actually touch it. So it didn't really count when they lied under oath. They weren't actually making a binding oath. I mean, it's just ridiculous, but such justified, so to speak, dishonesty was prevalent. But this is just the beginning. It actually went one step further, because here's the thing. By the first century, the day of Christ, the Jews believed that any use of the divine name was blasphemy. See, you couldn't say the name of God, Yahweh. You couldn't utter the divine name. You couldn't write down the divine name. Only priests could do this on special occasions. Otherwise, any use of the divine name Yahweh was itself seen as taking the name of the Lord in vain, i.e. blasphemy. So what about oaths? I thought only oaths in the name of God counted. Well, the scribes started forming substitutions for God's name. Made a long list of objects that counted as a legitimate substitute for the name of God and, and those that didn't count based on how close something was to God. And so, did you make a vow using an illegitimate substitute for the name of God? Well, that vow is not binding. If you want to go back on your word, you've you've done no wrong. It's not a sin. For example, they would teach that an oath sworn by Jerusalem is not binding, but an oath sworn to Jerusalem is binding because you're thought to be facing the abode of God. So if you said in a transaction, like, hey, I vow by Jerusalem to pay you 10 denarii for your work today, but later you're not so satisfied with their work, so you give them five denarii, day's wages, the guy could object. He could get the religious authorities involved because you vowed to pay him 10, but you could say back, well, I vowed by Jerusalem, not to Jerusalem, so I, I wasn't invoking God. It's not a binding vow. You can see how this is an extra level of ridiculousness and what you have to realize is who's, who's making up these rules. It's the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees. They, they controlled the whole playbook. They were writing the rule book. And you know what that means? 
It means they had all the power. They, they could craft things to ensure that they got away with whatever they wanted. They could literally justify intentional perjury or dishonest vows through the, this legal language in these loopholes. And I'm not making this up. Here's a quote from Rabbi Maimonides. Now, granted, he's a medieval rabbi, but he was summarizing the teaching of the Mishnah, ancient codified rabbinical teaching. Here's what he said, quote, If anyone swears by heaven or by earth or by the sun, although the mind of the swearer be under these words to swear by him who created them, yet this is not an oath. Or if any swear by some of the prophets or by some of the books of the scripture, although the sense of the swearer be to swear by him that sent the prophets or that gave that book, nevertheless, this is not an oath, end quote. So in other words, you can swear by heaven, earth, and the holy prophets, the Bible itself, but it's, it's still not quite close enough to God, so it's not a binding oath. And look, this now explains, though, why Jesus rattles off these objects in verses 34 to 36. These were some of the substitutions the Jews made for oaths in the name of God in the first century. Verse 34, make no oath by heaven. Verse 35, make no oath by earth, by Jerusalem. Verse 36, by your own head. These had become the subjects of their vows. The religious leaders would determine which counted, which didn't, which were binding, which weren't. But look, this this whole system came from wicked hearts trying to get away with deceit. Let me give you another biblical example to kind of make more sense of this. Just flip over to Matthew 23. Because Jesus later, he will directly rebuke the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocritical strangling of God's law. So look at what he says, Matthew 23. You probably heard this passage before. Maybe now it'll make a little more sense. Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Matthew 23, verse 16, he says to them, this whole passage, he's rebuking the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He adds another one. He says, woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. Verse 18, and whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. He uses different examples here, but you can see that the same types of tricks and games they played. Thinking they could swear by this or that, and it it didn't count. It wasn't binding. You swear by the temple, that doesn't really count. Swear by the gold of the temple, well, now we know you're serious. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking real here. Now, side note, it just betrays their heart of greed, what they thought mattered more. But I mean, obviously, they were missing the point of God's law entirely. And so Jesus rebukes them. that They just, they obliterated the heart and the spirit of God's law to justify doing the exact opposite. All the while, keeping a veneer of obedience. 
But it doesn't work that way. God is not fooled. He's not mocked. Their self-righteousness counts for nothing before him. And their heart of deceit, it's going to be exposed. It's going to be judged. Christ himself will be that judge. He's the one to rebuke them in Matthew 23. Going back to Matthew 5, though, his concern here on the Sermon on the Mount, it's not yet to just outright judge and condemn the scribes and Pharisees. Here, early in ministry, he's, he's correcting them. He's setting the record straight for the sake of the people. He's letting them know that this is how it really is before the Lord. And so with that in mind, we can now look at, thirdly, what Jesus said. What Jesus said about the whole thing. What Moses said, what the rabbi said, now what what Jesus said. Starting in verse 34, he's going to give us the, the true nature of God's word and will on oaths, on vows, on keeping your word. He's going to just completely erase the artificial distinction the scribes made between invoking God's name or likeness and not. Just just a a few strokes of the pen, he just X's out all their legal loopholes. I mean, I know we wish we could do this sometimes. We see the government or corporations twist the law to gain an advantage. We often can't do anything about it. We're, we're not lawyers. But, but Jesus, being the word incarnate, he had the authority and the ability to do so. And he's going to set the record straight. So let's, let's see what he says now. You should be able to make sense of his logic now with all that background. Verse 34. He says, but, but I say to you, this is what you heard. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, For it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem. For it is the city of the great king. He says, make make no oath at all by by Jerusalem, by heaven, by earth. Here he's pinpointing three common objects of Jewish oaths at the time. And in the teaching of the rabbis, by the way, these objects didn't count. These were non-binding oaths. What they would say to get away with something to the uh, unlearned, the uneducated, those who didn't know better. You could pull a fast one by vowing by Jerusalem. These were breakable oaths. But, but Jesus says otherwise. They thought they weren't invoking God really when they said these things. But what's he saying? You want to swear by heaven? Like that heaven, that's, that's the throne of God. Of course you're still swearing by God when you swear by heaven. That's a binding oath. You want to swear by, by the earth? And the earth is God's footstool. He made the whole thing. Of course, you're still invoking God when you swear by the earth. I mean, you want to swear by Jerusalem. That one's not even hard. It's, it's the city of the great king. Of course, you're still invoking God when you swear by Jerusalem. And look, don't misunderstand and think Jesus is sinking to their level. He's going to play their game. He's not going to give us his list of authorized vows and legal language versus their list. That, that's not what this is about. He's just cutting through all their nonsense. The Jews are trying to justify deceit by claiming, you know, they weren't really invoking God in their oaths based on their language. But it's so disingenuous and deceitful. That's something Satan would do. The deceiver. That's the type of trick the deceiver would make. That's a play out of his book. But to think this is how they were interpreting the Bible, the word of God. But no, it doesn't work like that. You can pick any object to swear by. It doesn't matter. All things trace back to God. He made all things. What are you going to pick that's outside of his scope? I mean, no matter what you do, any vow, 
any oath. It invokes God because he's Lord overall. And don't think that clever language gets you off the hook before the Lord. He created you. He has authority over your life. The point is that there's, there's nowhere you can go, especially for those who claim to follow Christ, right? God calls us to be a people of truth telling. When? Always. All the time. Just like God. In fact, the more you think about it, when you become radically committed to truth telling, doesn't a vow become kind of obsolete? Like, if I'm known for always keeping my word, always telling the truth, why do I need some special vow to, to convince you that I'm really telling the truth? That actually gets at what Jesus is prescribing here. Because in, in his contrast, he's not just giving us his own authorized list of acceptable vow language. No, he, he's just, his point is, you should just always be truthful, no matter what. And then it, it just doesn't matter. You don't even need to vow or oath. Verse 37 he says, just, just let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. I mean, for citizens of his kingdom, every word spoken should be so true, dependable, and reliable. It doesn't need to be buttressed by some vo- a vow or oath. I mean, isn't it already a bad sign if you have to give some vow that you're going to keep your word? Like, what does that say about the rest of your language? And again, if you have a mechanic who said to you, like, I solemnly vow in God's name, I'm not going to make things up and pretend your car is more broke than it is to upcharge you. You might appreciate the assurance, but at the same time, like, shouldn't that always be the case? Like, shouldn't you never deceive and an upcharge? So like, why do you need some special vow to tell me that? That's actually more suspicious that you would even say that. <laughs> just, just say what you mean, be truthful and honest, Always. The Lord wants his people to be of the truth because he is of the truth. Anything beyond truth telling, Jesus says, is of evil. At the end of verse 7, the phrase evil, it carries the definite article in the Greek. So it just as easily be translated the evil one, meaning Satan. And I think that very well may be the case here. Satan is the father of lies. He, he introduced sin into the world. How? Through deception. This whole world was cursed through deception. But Christ is calling his disciples to be sons of light, sons of their father in heaven, who's a God of what? Of truth. Now, before wrapping this up, bringing this lesson home, I want to address one question that that comes up in this passage frequently. Back in verse 34, Jesus says, make no oath at all, right? Make no oath at all. The question is, is that an absolute statement? Is Jesus forbidding Christians from ever taking an oath or a vow, ever, even in a legal setting? I bring this up because this is the primary passage that some use to argue for that. Notably in, in church history, even today, Anabaptists and Quakers, they've held this view based on this text. They believe they should be truthful at all times, and therefore taking any oath implies they're being otherwise untruthful. So they believe any oath, any vow, in any circumstance, is sin, based on this passage. Many Quakers in the past were imprisoned because on stand, they, they couldn't take an oath. They were found guilty right then and there. And they don't take marriage vows. So is this right? Should we object to every instance of taking an oath or making a vow based on this passage? I will say that Quakers are right in pointing out that Christians should be so truthful 
that oaths and vows really become obsolete in day-to-day life. We shouldn't need any special formula to convince one another of truthfulness. That we should be so characterized by integrity that we don't need to swear that we're going to keep our word. Just yes is yes, no is no. Simple as that. But they are still misunderstanding the scope of what Jesus is saying here. He's not making a universal statement. He's reacting against the flippant, hypocritical oaths of the Jews. Look, we already read how the Old Testament law made provision for oaths and vows. And back in verse 17, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. Also, you realize that God himself has made many oaths and vows to us. I mean, his whole plan of salvation is predicated on the biblical covenants. And they all are, that's just a series of divine oaths. He swears by himself to save those who call on his name. Like Hebrews 6, 17, is God swore an oath. It's not that God makes these vows to increase the credibility of his words as if his other words are less true or less credible. No, he makes these vows for our sake. It puts emphasis on his salvation promises and it draws out our faith. But look, you see all the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, David, they're all making vows on special, solemn occasion. And they weren't sinning when they do so. Jesus and the apostles did the same thing. George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, he challenged a judge who wanted him to swear. And he said, if you can show me one passage of scripture where Jesus or his apostles made an oath, I will swear. The judge couldn't do so. That's because he just didn't know his Bible very well. Look, later in Matthew's own gospel, we see Jesus himself take an oath. Matthew 26, he's under trial by the Jews. And throughout this whole trial, he's remained completely silent. Hasn't said a thing. He's not going to play into their false trial or or their, their unjust trial, really. But later, being exasperated, the high priest charges Jesus under oath. This is Matthew 26, 63. He says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And that word adjure in Greek literally means to place under oath, to put someone under oath, same language. And in response, that's when Jesus breaks his silence. He recognized that to remain silent when being placed under oath, that's an implicit denial of what is true. He couldn't do that. So he accepted the oath and he affirmed he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Likewise, you know, Paul volunteered many vows. Second Corinthians one twenty-three, he says, I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. He's invoking the name of God like this. He does it many times to assure his words. And look, when Jesus and Paul make vows, they're not using them to mask deception. They're not using them flippantly as if they're otherwise known for dishonest speech. Just on rare, special occasions, oaths served a purpose of, of adding solemnity to one's words. Look, today in court, in marriage, in public office, Making solemn vows would be consistent with Christ's teaching and Christ's own practice. You don't want to miss the point of Christ's words here in Matthew 5. And sadly, some have. The ancient Jews, they fell into this trap of legalism. Where they just ignored the spirit, the intent of the word. And they focused entirely on the bare letter. And like some Christians today have fallen in the same trap regarding the words of Jesus 
in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, of all places, the Sermon on the Mount, where he's exposing to us the heart of God's word. Some have reduced Christ's own words to a wooden literalism, and they just find the same legalism as the Jews that, that strains out a gnat and swallows a camel. But we, we don't want to be those who miss the point of this passage back in Matthew 5. What is the point? It's that Christ's kingdom is characterized by radical truth and honesty. And those who belong to that kingdom better be the same way. And whatever the form, God's people must never resort to deceit or dishonesty. That, that's the way of the world. And yeah, we may be able to vow on special solemn occasions but our ordinary words should be so reliable that our simple yes just means yes. And our simple no just means no. That's a needed lesson for us because we will be held accountable for every word spoken. Did you know that? Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus said, Every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. But are we, as Christians even, are we always honest, honestly speaking? Our flesh is still prone to deceive in order to fulfill its desires. And look, this means we're prone to resort to the same tricks and games as the Pharisees to get our own way, to get away with deceit. It's possible. Yeah, we, we might not play around with oaths as much today, but... If you ever had a work dispute where you give someone your word, you, you, you say, I'll pay you this much. I, I agree to pay you this much for your labor, like a painter. But later you're not satisfied with the work, so you decide to pay him less, and he can contend with you, but you might say back, but look, I didn't sign anything. Did, did we sign a contract? No, so I'm going to do what I want. And look, in our culture, in our legal setting, you, you get away with that. You won't have to pay him. You didn't sign a contract. You, you probably get away with it. But do you think that is righteous? Do you think that's fitting being a follower of Christ whose way is radical truth-telling? When you gave that person your word, you think God heard that. What do you think he would want you to do as his follower? How else do we bend the truth, telling you know, white lies or half-truths to justify deceit and personal gain? How do we stretch our words to appear honest, but in reality, we, we have other plans in mind? Have you ever told someone like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely help you move next Saturday. I'll happily be there. In your mind, you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to help you move next Saturday. I will find some excuse that really works. But it's, it's not like I promised. I mean, I said, yeah, I'll be there, but it's not like I promised. It's not like my yes is yes, right? But you see the point. You should be so marked by integrity that your yes is yes. When, when you make any commitment, you follow through, even at a loss, I think it's Psalm 15 that says that the blessed man is one who makes a vow, swears by it, even at personal cost. Especially, though, never deceive on, on purpose. We, we can't go there. And like, sometimes this means just being more careful with your words, with your commitments. Like your wife asks, are you going to be home today at five? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you promise? Sure, be home at five, I promise. But things come up, circumstances change, you're not going to be home at five. But now you face disappointment and it cheapens the value of your words. Instead, just, just be more careful with your words. Uh, I will be home as, as soon as I'm finished with everything. That's, that's all I can say. But it's honest. At least you're being honest. It's easy to pick on the ancient Pharisees that they're, they're easy targets for dishonest dealings. But any time we approach and study the word of God, we're ultimately meant to evaluate self. Not, not someone else, just self. 
How different really are we? Will you ever resort to deception or false vows to just justify getting what you want while still appearing truthful? That that same trap of the Pharisees, it's still around today. Everyone wants to be good without necessarily doing good. Everyone wants to, to be seen as righteous without necessarily doing righteousness. You want people to think you're honest. Everyone wants people to think they're honest, but not everyone wants to be honest. And usually what's behind this deception is gain. We lie, we deceive, we swear falsely because we want something, some advantage, whatever it might be. We don't trust God to provide it, or it might be straight out of God's bounds. But, you know, the only way we're going to get it, we tell ourselves or keep it, is to craft We have to be crafty like the deceiver. We have to deceive. This is still the way of the world. This is still the way of the evil one. And deceit like this is still found at every level of our society, top to bottom. But we follow Christ. We're we're part now of his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. This has no place in any level of his kingdom. We're called to a different way. We're called to put away falsehood at every level, in every form, We're called to put on truthfulness at every level, in every form. Integrity is such an essential part of Christ's own perfect character. He desperately wants to see it formed in his people as we follow him in this age. And he gives us the spirit to do that. The spirit of what? Truth. Four times in the upper room, he calls him the spirit of truth who's given to us. Why do you think we're given that spirit of truth? There will come a day when lies and deception are removed from the world once for all. You know, Revelation 21, 22, last two chapters of the Bible tells of a new heavens and a new earth, which God will create in which righteousness dwells. It's the eternal kingdom. But did you know this? In the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, those two chapters, there's three separate lists of those who will not be there. The type of people, the types of people who will not inherit that kingdom, the unrighteous, will be cast out of God's presence forever. You know what's interesting though is there's only one sin that shows up in all three lists. And you can probably already guess which one it is. Lying. Lying. Liars especially will have no place in this eternal kingdom. What does that tell you? Why do you think that is? Between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, what went, what went wrong? Lies, deception, the evil one, and it's been multiplied ever since. In the first two chapters of the Bible, the world was free from sin and lies. Only God's truth reigned. And it's going to be that way in the end, in the kingdom, in the last two chapters. All error will cease. All deceivers will be judged. That includes Satan, the father of lies, who was introduced and led the world astray in the third chapter of the Bible. Kind of interesting. He's done away in the third to last chapter of the Bible and all who are his. The thing is though, that's us. Like we're all guilty. We're we're all liars. None of us merit a place in that eternal kingdom. Before Christ, we all deserve the same fate as the evil one to be just cast out of God's holy presence forever. We're, we're not righteous. We're not truthful. But this is why we ultimately always need to be reminded and come back to Christ. This is why we follow Christ. This is why God sent the Savior into the world to rescue the deceived, to redeem the deceivers. We're all both. 
this is something we all need desperately. And, and to receive his offer of salvation, you must repent, believe in him. You cling to him as your savior. You follow him as your Lord. And then he will bring you transformation and new life. He will enroll you in that kingdom all by his grace. Jesus invites you to follow him before it's too late. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. But that means right now you can return to the father. You can be reconciled and saved through Christ by faith in him. You can be made holy. You can be made righteous. You can be made truthful by his transforming work. We need to be ultimately reminded of our deep need for this savior, why we follow him. He's our only hope. So now let us who do follow him strive to put on Christ, to follow him in his way, always, which is a way of truth. Let's pray together. Our savior, Christ, we, we honor you this morning. We thank you this morning as we recall your word, your teaching, as we read your scriptures, we're transported back 2,000 years ago to, to the Sea of Galilee, just sitting at your feet, hearing you teach us, your people, about the ways of your kingdom, which really just are your own ways. You're, you're the God of all truth. And we thank you for this word. It does convict us and correct us, sometimes rebuke us, but still, it, it heals us. It, it uh, purifies us and points us to the way. We thank you, God, for sending your son into the world. Again, we remember him this time of year, that coming as a child, but we thank you that he did more than be born. And he lived perfectly righteously, and then, and then he died on that cross to pay for our sins, our, our lies, our deceptions. Every careless word, that judgment fell on him in our place. And then he rose again. We thank you for this good news in this gospel. We pray for any here who have not received it, that they would. They would be convicted by their own sin. That their only hope is found in Christ. And they need to call on him to repent, believe, and cling to the Savior today as their only hope to be made new. And for us who have, may we, may we worship. And in that worship is not just singing songs, but, but following Christ, but being truthful, but putting on his righteousness. We're prone to deception still. Help us to stand firm against the, the schemes of the evil one that we would not be led astray and, and do the same as we follow Christ. And may we be convinced and convicted today to be a people of just radical integrity, honesty, truthfulness. We know by this, you are glorified. We are blessed. So work this uh, truth in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.